This is KSQD Santa Cruz. From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. My guest, Jesse Green, is the chief theater critic for The New York Times. He's the author of several books, including the novel Oh Beautiful and the memoir The Velveteen Father, An Unexpected Journey to Parenthood. His newest book is by far and away my favorite book of the last year, Shy, The Alarmingly Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers, written with Mary Rogers, daughter of Richard Rogers uh, and the composer of Once Upon a Mattress and the author of Freaky Friday. Mary Rogers passed away in 2016. But her co-author is here. Jesse Green, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you, Gary. It's great to be here. Uh, before we talk about Shy, which I want to talk about a lot, I want to ask you a little bit about your works. Uh, and so, you know, uh, it's in the era of the Internet, criticism has um, lost a lot of its impact. That is because everybody can review a movie or a CD or a book and let everybody know what they think. Uh, they can like it or whatever. Um, on Amazon or elsewhere. But the theater critic, I think, is a different thing because to go to the theater, it costs $250 or something. So I think a theater critic still has uh, some impact. I mean, um, do you think that you're not liking Almost Famous, for instance, it will, will shorten its run? So far, it hasn't worked at all. <laughs> uh, not that that was my intent, right. but uh, I. I do. I do think the Times theater critic, whether I'm in that seat or someone else in, is in that seat, uh, has as much power as it's possible to have in the theater these days, which is not much, as you say. Uh, I think we can do more to bring the attention to uh, audiences and readers of uh, things they might not have heard of, things we love that are maybe a little bit offbeat and promote them and get them uh, an audience more than kill something that has a built-in audience anyway. A lot of these shows are critic-proof. You know, if 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 you're based on a big movie or if you're a jukebox of Neil Diamond songs, you're probably going to run no matter what I think of it. Uh, so, uh, but But you also make a good point, which is that unlike seeing TV or movies, it's very hard to watch the theater. You have to go to a specific place you have to spend a lot of money, which I don't, because right. I get the tickets free. And you uh, also have to develop a, a long history of seeing things, which means spending that money and that time over many, many years. You can't do it in your bedroom with freebie stream, streams, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I do think there's a way in which theater criticism uh, retains some of its value, perhaps a little longer before we all dive over the cliff. Well, um, when I go to a, a, a play or a musical in, in New York. It's rare because I live in California, but I go to New York on occasion and I'm th I think, well, which of the shows that are playing do I want to see? And I know I'm not going to see too many because I can't afford to go to more than two. And so I'll pick two out of 75 that are playing. And, um, and I'm so enthralled because I'm in New York and I'm seeing a play. Um, that I guess that's what you mean by being critic proof that you know um a, a lot of people from out of town come and go to shows do you think that new yorkers are going to go see uh 
almost famous or something of that nature, or do you think it's mostly tourists? Well, these shows have to build in a certain amount of expectation of New York audiences because that's who'll see anything at the beginning. That's your first audience here, especially for totally for off Broadway and certainly for Broadway. But if they want to run more than three months, they have to have uh, the appeal for the tourist audience. And if they want to run longer than two years, they need an international appeal, which probably means not a lot of complicated English. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, that's a, a lot of shows do so well with uh, international audiences because they don't have language demands. But uh, the New York audiences, on the other hand, are quite sophisticated and they will go to weird stuff. And uh, that's where I feel I have the most sway and in both senses. So I think there's a lot of people who if I, you know, I don't like jukebox musicals as an example. I mean, I've done everything in my power to stamp them out. Yeah. And uh, it hasn't worked. But <laughs> I think I think people who know that they agree with me on that when they read my review, then that will affect their ticket buying. And that's how criticism should work. It's not that I'm telling you what to think. It's telling you what I think, and you get to know what I think, and that helps you understand, you know, what you might like. Uh, and and I should just add that growing up, I mean, I didn't grow up in New York. I didn't see Broadway shows except occasionally when they came through Philadelphia. But I read criticism uh, of, of Broadway shows. It sounds weird, but that was way, the way I experienced something I loved when I couldn't experience it directly. And, and that's a service that critics in all fields play. Nobody reads all the books that a book critic reads. Right, but, yes. But we love to hear, learn about how the critic and the book they're writing about thinks. But but so, but so since I'm only going to go to two shows, I'm going to be more <laughs> enthralled than if you go to... I mean, how many shows a week uh, or a month do you see? Uh, it, it varies. And of course, the pandemic has, you know, thrown a wrench into everything. But uh, I, I'd say in the course of a year, I see between 100 and 150 shows. Um, so do you think you become um, more critical, more, uh, callous? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes, I'm a crusty old callous. I, <laughs> I, well, I mean, you do become more discerning as you do, as you gain expertise in anything, you know, whether it's a craft or or an art or or just your whatever your work is i mean you you get to know more about it but i am still i go in every time and i say i hope i love this mm. and i am quite capable of being thrilled and shocked as if i were you know 10 years old uh, well i know you really enjoyed uh audrey mcdonald's play i was reading your review the other day I certainly did. Uh, but, you know, that's not for everyone. Um, but, I, you know, I wish it were. And I, I hope everyone would give it a chance. But, yes, I I mean, basically, she is somebody who I, I would probably love in anything. But this is an important American play that was neglected for many years. That Basically, her star power brought back. When I go to the movies, I, I, I seldom like, well, I don't go because now, uh, because the pandemic, I just watched them with streaming. But um, I've been to the movies like twice in two years. But um, when I go to the movies, I don't like a lot of new movies. Uh, I'm a big fan of movies in general. But like, for instance, the, uh, the critically acclaimed recent films, I find all of them to be a half hour or 40 minutes too long. And uh, And I'm not particularly interested in a lot of sequels and series, which is what most movies are. Um, 
but a lot of young people love that stuff. And one of my uh, film appreciation students said to me, well, if you pay $15 to go to the movie, don't you want it to be long? <laughs> I said, no, I want it to be good. Um, but, so a lot of that, I guess, is a generational thing. So do you think that that's true in theater, that that young people, or do you, I don't know if young people go to the theater, but do, uh, is, is there a, a generation of theater goers who want to see um, jukebox musicals, or are they just um, lured in by something that they, they know? Well, I actually think it's baby boomers who are feeding that market because it's nostalgic. I find kids are, you know, aside from the money problem, are willing to try anything. That the, the Audrey McDonald play we're discussing is, is a, by Adrian Kennedy. It's called Ohio State Murders, and it's 70 minutes long. You know, and if you're doing it on a per minute basis, dollars per minute, it's not a bargain. But that play, you couldn't take it if it were any longer. It's so intense. Uh, it's something that I think you're suggesting some movies could learn from. Uh, and, and I find that, you know, younger people are actually more up for things that are unexpected because they don't have a, a rigid framework uh, in which they understand that things have to be. Yeah, they're in, into the uh, franchises and stuff like that. And to uh, poppy shows like, say, Six, which I also enjoyed. But um, they're the ones who I think are most flexible about what they're willing to put their heart into. So in terms of a jukebox musical, your opposition is that it's kind of an easy uh, thing, that it's not... I mean, that's that's how how I feel about (laughs) remakes. It's like, um, if you're going to put all that effort into something, give me something new that I don't already know. That's a philosophical objection, but the practical problems are two for me. One is that they're usually bad. I mean, <laughs> so, the, you know, you've got existing music that does not actually tell the story that they want to tell, especially if it's one of these biographical jukebox musicals. You know, the songs were not written to, to, to describe a particular, uh, uh, you know, dramatic moment in that uh, songwriter's life that is being shown on stage. So they never fit. And the songs just don't work the way songs ought to work in theater. So that's one problem. And the other problem is that they're very often motivated cynically by, you know, the desire for brand extension. Somebody has a catalog of uh, valuable copyrights, which one day will no longer be valuable. And they want to get as the, usually it's not even the artist, it's the publishing company wants to get as much out of them as they possibly can. And they don't really care about the quality. They just want to, you know, get the product into a form where they can extend its valuable life. And when I smell that, I get really annoyed because that's not where I want theater to be coming from. That said, I just saw one based on the songs of Max Martin, a pop hit writer for 30 years. I would have thought I would hate it based on everything I just told you. I had a great time. It uh-huh. depends on the skill and the wit with which it's done. And the production. And the production. But this it's like this was witty. Like if mm-hmm. if it's if it's witty, I'll I'll put up with it. Yeah. Well, I have to say that I don't like them, but I liked <laughs> I liked uh beautiful. I enjoyed beautiful a lot. And I enjoyed summer. I had a good time at that. Oh, your name too, I really dislike. But that's the point. I mean, we don't have we don't all have to like the same stuff. We, yeah. you know, the, the, that's. I try to model disagreement as fun, provocative, and and stimulating. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I say that because I prefer it to the kind that's nasty, vicious, and terrifying. 
which you get a lot of these days, thanks to Twitter and, you know, comment threads and things like that. Well, the actress who played Carol King, Jesse Mueller. Oh, she's great. She wanted Tony. I mean, did, did you object to her performance? Or you just No, didn't... not at all. She was the best thing in the show. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I, I've liked her in many things. No, no, that, that, you can read my review. <laughs> all right, I will. <laughs> uh, what about uh, Carousel? Did you see her in Carousel? I, caught I did see her in Carousel. She was lovely. I, I didn't think the production was great, but I, I thought she was lovely. So I, I saw that at a matinee, and I've been told, you know, never go to a matinee, they're not as good, but it was quite good. And and when um, Renee Fleming sang her big number in the show, you know, everybody was crying in the theater, and it was kind of like seeing Babe Ruth hit a home run at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> well, it's it's funny you mentioned that song in that show, not that I'm trying to force a segue here before it's yes. time. But, of course, the show is by Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. Richard Rogers was the father of, of Mary, whom, whom I write about. And she hated that song. <laughs> she, she loved the show. Carousel was very meaningful to her in many ways. It's a story of a, you know, a bad parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but uh, if it were up to her, she'd probably cut You'll Never Walk Alone. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, uh, of course, it definitely takes you out of the show to a certain extent that you especially when you have somebody like you know a, a opera legend singing it <laughs> well it was pretty Mary was a little extreme about those things she didn't like those uh what she called those treacly hymns uh but uh i think it's fair enough that we can continue to have that song in the show and and love it for what it is um so this wonderful book shy the alarmingly outspoken memoirs of Mary Rogers. Um, it, it was published, so it's been I was six years since she died, or something like that. Longer. She died in 2015. Yeah. So, um, how how much of the book was written, and how much of the book did you write before she died? Well, I wrote the whole book. Uh, right. That was the plan from the beginning. I mean, when I say I wrote it, I mean, I'm the one who put the words together. We spent two and a half years talking uh, twice a week, four to five hours at a time at a clip. Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of pages of of my typescript of what she was saying. And uh, we talked about how the book would be written and we went through lots of ideas. But when it came time to actually do the writing, the whole reason I was there was she didn't want to do it. She wanted me to do it. So uh, I started and she died. She saw 10 pages. Oh, I see. So um, how did you meet her? How did you become the guy to write the book? Uh, Last one standing. Um, (laughs) No, I, I uh, met her. Well, okay. So you've mentioned her father. She had uh, six children, five of whom survived into a wonderful adulthood. One of whom is the composer Adam Gettle, composer and lyricist, uh, also a, a Broadway genius, um, who wrote the, this show called The Light in the Piazza and another one called Floyd Collins and more coming up. So uh, I was writing a profile of him for the New York Times Magazine. And uh, while doing that, I thought, well, you know, I've always heard about this Mary Rogers. She sounds like a hoot. Um, and I'd heard that his father, Hank Gettle, was also a, a lovely guy. Why don't I go talk to them and, you know, for this profile? So they gladly invited me over to their house and 
fed me cookies and tea and just the most astonishing gossip I'd ever heard. Um, <laughs> some of it about, about themselves and their son. And I was like, well, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be telling me all this. I'm going to write for the news. <laughs> you know, it's not typical for me when I was writing features a lot before I was a critic. I, I, you know, I was usually trying to drag information out of people not trying to push it back into them. <laughs> and so I wrote the piece and they loved it. Uh, you know, I don't think Adam loved it as much, but they loved it. And we became friends. And over the years, I would hear that Mary was trying to write her memoirs and wasn't happy with it. And she had a contract. She rescinded the contract. She had another contract. And eventually she came to me and said, you know, the reason she's not doing it is because it's not fun for her to write that way anymore. What would be fun for her would be to talk with me and have me write it. And that's how it happened. And she talks to you in this book and to us as though we already know everything. There's, there's a lot of, um, you know, she assumes that we already know everything that's happened in her life and who all the people are. So you kind of, um, you, your voice comes in every couple of minutes to tell me the things that she's assuming. Well, it was that was an early problem that we had to solve. Uh, I had read some of the drafts that she tried to write, uh, you know, um, and they had the feeling, as I describe in the book, of of being something written from within a re-education camp or, you know, <laughs> or psychiatric case studies. I mean, she referred to her father as R.R., Richard Rogers, and her mother as D.R., Dorothy Rogers, and you know, she would explain whenever she mentioned somebody, so, you know, she would go into a little explanation of like, who is Betty Comden or who is Hal Prince or who is Stephen Sondheim? Of course, in her actual conversation, she would never do such a thing. Um, and even if you were a little mystified by who who is Temple, Texas that she just mentioned, you, you know, you were just along for the ride. And I knew from my time spent with her that what I wanted for this book was her voice. I wanted it unimpeded by anything she wouldn't say. So the decision was made very early that she was going to call her father daddy, which is what she actually did in real life, and her mother mummy, and Stephen Sondheim, Steve, and, you know, and so forth. And a second voice would emerge at the, at the bottom of the page that would begin kind of neutrally explaining who these people are and what these facts are and what that show was and what was going on at that time and gradually become a kind of conversation partner in the book. It has this very unusual format. Some people don't care for it, but that was the idea. And um, it allowed me to preserve in its entirety uh, uh, her voice or my reconstruction of her voice for 400 pages. You could just sit there and read her, hear her. And that's what I wanted. And it works. And I don't know anybody that wouldn't like this book. The, the, this, to me, this book from the very first paragraph of the book just jumps out and like, oh, I can't wait to read this book. It's such a wonderful and hilarious and irreverent and an open book. But what about honest? Is it honest? Well, one of the reasons that it took her so long to decide to move forward with uh, memoirs and then eventually with me was that she was very concerned about its being honest. She had a reputation as being reflexively over honest, perhaps, <laughs> as the subheadline, uh, as the subtitle suggests. Uh, Alarmingly outspoken. 
Yeah, I mean, everyone knew her to be that way. And certainly my first experience of her was as such. Um, and she also felt very strongly that she wanted to correct a problem uh, that that she had felt for herself as a woman who never got the benefit of the real history of women of earlier generations because they could not be honest. And she pointed to her own parents' memoirs, being famous people themselves. They wrote a slew of them, which she considered, you know, complete fantasies. Um, I mean, it's not just because, you know, oddly enough, Richard Rogers didn't mention that he was a, you know, a serial philanderer and a drunk. I mean, you don't really expect him to do that. But just the entire framing of, of those lives was false to her. And so it was extremely important for her to be, uh, to counteract all of that. And yet, you know, less than anyone I know, but still enough so that it was an issue, she had a few things she didn't feel it was hers, her right to discuss. Just a few. And yeah. um, we decided, I convinced her, like, if we're giving readers 95% or 97% of the complete truth and saying there's still a couple percent we're withholding, that's a pretty good bargain. And <laughs> life like hers, it's plenty. I don't I don't know if you could take any more, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very eventful life, as you say, filled with hilarious and kind of horrible situations that become hilarious and some that are just horrible, sad, um, including the death of a child. And uh, I, I feel like anyone who would complain that this book doesn't have enough honesty in it <laughs> really has nowhere to go for, you know, in the history of memoirs for anything more honest. Well, I find it interesting, Jesse Green, that as a show business memoir, which it at least partially is, Yeah, it's not particularly concerned with the show business events. It's like the show business events are things that mark time, but it's her life as she goes through these things that is the core of the story that you're telling. Yeah, it's it's the story of, of a woman's progress. You know, that's, that's a pilgrim's progress. It's about being a woman of that time who wanted it all you know, uh, and was not born to a world that thought that that was appropriate. She wanted to be a mother very much and was very much six children. She wanted to be, uh, you know, a lover. She wanted to be happy in romance and in marriage. And she wanted to be a professional, Uh, in this case, even worse, an artist, even worse, a composer in a field where there were none. There were basically no women composers uh, who worked on music in musical theater? You know, a couple names in the history, but very, very few, um, and uh, you know, certainly none who were models for her. So, I was more interested in shaping the material, in telling that story, and as you say, using the achievements uh, and the lack of achievements in many cases in musical theater, but also when she turned to writing fiction for young adults, the Freaky Friday series. And then in the third act of her career, when she became a the chairman of Juilliard and a philanthropic uh, doyen, uh, I was using those to tell the story of her progress through life from a really uh, repressed and uh, unloved uh, child of privilege to a woman who tried absolutely everything. And... Um, 
I, I think, you know, that's, and that's what she was most interested in. It's like, is telling people you can do more than one thing. If something doesn't work out, you have other arrows in your quiver, try them. And if that doesn't work out, try something else. Don't get stuck like, as she felt most men of her generation did. Like if they didn't, if they weren't the top broker or if they weren't the top lawyer or, you know, then they like committed suicide or something. They just couldn't handle it. And women, she felt, could be smarter than that. Or at least it was her experience that by being more flexible, she was able to live a much fuller life and get a lot more of what she wanted than she would have otherwise. Well, she is the daughter of Richard Rodgers, probably the most successful composer in history. Uh, I don't know, maybe Irving Berlin. I don't know, Richard Rodgers. Well, there's a fight about that in the book uh, because yeah. she knew the Berlin daughters. They went to school together and she was always kind of monitoring who's more famous. And her <laughs> kept saying Irving Berlin is. But, <laughs> but Rodgers was a real businessman and he uh, probably created the first great American fortune based on writing music for the theater. Uh, and maybe the only, I mean, I mean, now we have like um, Andrew Lloyd Webber as an example or Stephen right. Schwartz, but uh, he was the one who had the business savvy along with Hammerstein to e- maintain ownership of all his copyrights or buy them back or do whatever was necessary so that he and only he and his uh, writing partners could exploit them and, and make some money out of them. Well, the world of popular music is very different now, but people do not record Andrew Lloyd Webber songs uh, and have hit records on the radio with them. Whereas Richard Rogers had that first with Rogers and Hart and then with Rogers and Hammerstein all even today, there's still people record those, those songs. And they will all the more so as they fall out of copyright, we're up to the mid twenties now or something like that. Ah. Um, so if, if you want to do some of the early songs, you're free to do them, but which is why Mary sold all the copyrights before she died. Um, while they still had great value in them. It's it's very interesting. So I know I've read some Richard Rogers biographies, including one very recently that, you know, let us know that he is a very withholding guy. I, I think the thing was when, uh, you know, Hammerstein came to him with a, one of the most fabulous lyrics ever written. And he goes, oh, yeah, that'll that'll do. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he was like that as a father, too. I mean... So you can imagine. I mean, he told Mary repeatedly, and so did his wife, you know, that she was fat and she her smile was too big and she laughed too loud and couldn't she be more demure and why did she have to be so rotten? That's uh, <laughs> not, not, a, not a nice way to, to grow up. But on the other hand, there's this man downstairs. They have, of course, it's a duplex apartment she grew up in and Downstairs, there was this man writing, you know, oh, what a beautiful morning on the piano. I mean, so she she did get something that in the end she found more valuable than good parenting. She does talk a bit in the book. You talk a bit in the book with her about the complexity of the relationship with her parents. And one of the things that I found interesting is the captions of the pictures in in the book. They are extremely revealing. Uh, particularly like there's one where she says um my mother was concentrating on how beautiful she was <laughs> <laughs> that's mary 
That's yeah, and it tells quote. me so much about her, 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 and her mother and their relationship. Well, her, her, you know, her mother is an example of the woman, the kind of woman that Mary could well have been, you know, uh, and uh, who was had a lot of the verve and intelligence of, of someone like Mary, but not anything like the flexibility and the uh, fury to get out. Um, she was trapped, but still quite a, quite a quite a brilliant woman in her own right and did some amazing things. She invented, for instance, the Johnny Mop. I'm sure we all appreciate her for yeah. that. Um, but as Mary said, she couldn't be bothered to get down on her knees and, you know, clean a, a spill off the floor because then she'd have to have her pants sent to the cleaners. <laughs> so, I mean, she was a very contradictory sort of woman and extremely controlling which was something Mary did not want. She did not want to be controlled. And there, I love the story. There were three, three places where a young man could take a young woman like Mary on a date in New York City at that time. And they were like the Drake Hotel. And they were like three high-end, extremely expensive uh, restaurant, you know, cabaret-type places within expensive, fancy hotels that most of the guys she was interested in could not afford. Mm. And... So what was she to do? So she had this thing where she went to the plaza. She went in the front door with her date and walked right out the back door and went down to the village to a what? Uh, <laughs> so that, you know, that's the beginning of Mary's uh, adult rebellion was with boys. Well, now, did you, Jesse Green, learn some things about Mary Rogers that you didn't know as you were going? And did you learn some things as you did when you were doing your uh, profile of her son that, oh, maybe I shouldn't know this? Well, by then I was used to the family tradition uh, of, uh, you know, providing more information than you could believe. But uh, <laughs> yes, I was, I, there were many, there were many things that shocked me. Uh, I don't mean prudishly exactly. It's not that. It's just the, the the lives that people live and that we don't get to hear about. It's so amazing when someone does tell you. Um, and also just the, you know, the world she lived in was so uh, elevated and so central to the culture of the time and so filled with the names that I grew up wondering about and treasuring that it just all was a little bit shocking to me. But there were a couple of things in particular uh, one, I, I, I won't say too much about it, but there's kind of a hilarious and awful story where she's so desperate to get out from under her parents' thumbs uh, in college that she winds up uh, uh, getting engaged to a Catholic guy. She, Her family was Jewish, and um, she converts to Catholicism mm -hmm. uh, and then doesn't marry the guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the story of her conversion had me reeling. And it, I also thought it was so strange and not quite credible the way she was telling it to me. But as with everything I, she told me that was weird and not quite credible, those were the things that absolutely held up when I looked into them uh, mm. factually. It all happened as she said it happened. Uh, and it's a kind of, you know, the idea, I mean, she had her first communion, communion at age 20 or something like that. It's, it's a very funny bunch of scenes. So that's, that's a happier one. Uh, I think the one that most people are shocked by is the, um, you know, she met Sondheim uh, when she was uh, 13 and he was 14. 
They became really close friends by their late teens when they were both working at the uh, Westport County Country Playhouse in Connecticut and were friends ever after until the day she died. Uh, but there was a period between her marriages, she had two marriages, when she and he uh, embarked on what she calls a trial marriage. I don't think it had ever been written about. I certainly had never heard about it. And it's kind of astonishing and kind of skin crawly. <laughs> and, it's a painful episode. Yeah. And then the the death of, of, of one of her children is something I hadn't really known. I mean, I knew there were five adults and I knew there were six births. So I knew something had happened, but I didn't really know how and why. And it's it's very upsetting. Heartbreaking. So do you think that it was easier to finish the book without her? Uh, well, no. I, I, I see your point. And there were ways in which it was because I didn't really have to answer to anyone. But answering to someone is usually a good thing mm-hmm. when you're a writer, at least to some extent. Um, and, you know, certainly in terms of research and checking, it, I, I could have spared years if I could have just called her and said, now, when you said this, I'm finding this, which is right. You know, uh, so there was that. But also, you know, I I was kind of terrified. Just I wanted to do right by her. And I didn't have her to tell me whether I was doing so. She had only read the first 10 pages. And as I say in the book, her response to them was, make them funnier, make them meaner. <laughs> and I said, Mary... I don't think that's even possible. The first section <laughs> of the book, which is what I showed her, is called Hostilities. <laughs> um, but I understood what she meant. She just wanted every page to be filled with with like interest and fun and no boring passages, if possible. She hated that kind of. And then I wrote cardboard feeling right, yeah. kind of thing. And that's a high bar to keep up for 400 pages. Uh, so, but but it it is true that by the time she died, I had her voice in me so deeply that I it was not a problem for me to figure out how to put together something she said in 2010 with something she said in 2012 and add something she alluded to another time and sort of craft it into a into a smooth replication of her voice. Uh, I, I could do all that. I would have preferred if she could have seen the result and okayed it. But um, we did have some one person she had nominated from her family, not any of her children, to read the final manuscript and approve or disapprove it as uh, carrying out what she had intended. And um, it was approved. <laughs> and And only later did her kids read it, which was kind of an amazing situation for me to have been able to write all that without, with their help, but without their uh, having any say in it. And are they happy with it? I think they all are. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think they're, they're quite, they're certainly happy that it's been so successful. Uh-huh. And I think they recognize that it's a really good version of her life. Of course they have different versions and they know other things that she didn't know or that she didn't tell or that I didn't choose to include, although not many of those. And I think they could each write pretty fabulous books of their own. They're incredible people. Um, But yeah, I I think it's uh, amazing how supportive they've been. I mean, 
if I think of somebody else writing about my mother and like, I don't get to say what's in it, that's a bizarre situation. So I, they've been fantastic. Well, let's talk a little bit about Mary Rogers work. Um, I love Once Upon a Mattress. Um, I've only seen the hour long Carol Burnett special TV version, which is hilarious and marvelous and wonderful and has most of the Broadway cast, right? Yeah. Uh, well, it's been done. It's been filmed and televised and, and revived on Broadway. And of course, it's done all over the world and especially in community and high school yeah. theaters uh, everywhere. And I myself was in it twice. No, oh. <laughs> that's that is. Uh, do you think uh, Carol Burnett is such a, a a force that we would know her anyway, or do you think that because of Once Upon a Mattress we know Carol Burnett? Oh, she was going to be a star. I mean, she'd already achieved a little bit of notoriety as a cabaret artist and on some TV shows, you know, doing a little number here or there. She was known uh, for a song about sort of a comic song about John Foster Dulles tells right. you about the time, but this part was so perfect for her and uh so uh, gave her such an opportunity to display all her gifts uh, the way she she had she has this amazing voice um and and her comic chops and her warmth especially that i think you know nothing else could have come along that so quickly would have catapulted her to starhood the way this did and um you know, and they and they did remain friends for the rest of their her life, Mary's life, and Carol, uh, along with Julie Andrews, appeared at her memorial service in quite a funny way. But um, yeah, yeah, uh, there were a lot of a uh, lot of people around in those years that Mary and her various writing partners, you know, uh, auditioned or experienced in various ways, hoping they would be in a show. And it, it's one one of the pleasures for me of the book is reading. Oh, here's. Here's Barbara Streisand backstage at the Bonsoir. You know, they go to her to read for another musical that they're writing, for instance. And, you know, there's a description of her at, you know, at age 19. That's quite wonderful. Um, but yeah, Carol Burnett, uh, it has to be said, also, I think, made the show. It's not just that the show made her. It's a great show. Um, I also saw at PJ's in Los Angeles, I saw The Mad Show. When I was really, in, no one has yeah. seen the Mad Show. I saw it, and many of the many of the cast members went on to become um, the players on Laughing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And um, I was a fan of Mad Magazine and a fan of theater, so my mother took me to see the Mad Show. Oh and my god! I loved it. I remember it well. I can remember some of the bits from it. There's, and, a, there's, a, there's a very famous song from it that's done all over now that she wrote with Sondheim. Uh, under he was he wrote under a pseudonym uh, for that show called The Boy From, which is a takeoff uh, of the hit of that time, The Girl from Ipanema. If you ever get a chance to listen to it, it's brilliant. And uh, it was sung in the original by Linda Lavin, who is uh, performing off-Broadway right now, as we said, you know, this week. Well, Jesse Green, it just so happens that I have the uh, original cast album to The Mad Show right here. So let's listen to The Boy From, sung by Linda Lavin and composed by Mary Rogers and Stephen Sondheim. Tall and slender like an Apollo, he goes walking by, and I have to follow him. The boy from Takarem 
Bala tomba del fuego Santa Malipa Zacatecas La junta de sol y cruz When we meet I feel I'm on fire And I'm breathless Every time I inquire How are things in Tacarem Bala tomba del fuego Santa Malipa Zacatecas La junta de sol y cruz Speak, does he vanish? Ah, why is he acting so clannish? Ah, I wish I understood Spanish. When I tell him I think he's the end, he giggles a lot with his friend. Tall and slender, moves like a dancer, but I never seem to get any answer from the boy from Takarimba, La Tumba del Fuego, Santa Malipa, Zacatecas, La Junta del Solicruz. I got the blues. Why? His trousers for a million. His trousers of a million. Why? Does he claim he's Castilian? He says he's Castilian. Why do his friends call him Lillian? And I hear at the end of the week he's leaving to start a boutique. Though I smile, I'm only pretending 'cause I know today's the last I'll be spending with the boy from Tacarembó. Santa Malipa Zacatecas La Junta del Soli Cruz Tomorrow he sails He's moving to Wales To live in Chlan Vaeplach Gwyn Gye Gogerich Gwyn Drubchlan Tasilio Gogogoch The Boy From sung by Linda Lavin from The Mad Show, a Broadway musical written by Mary Rogers, who was the subject of a book by my guest, Jesse Green. I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf. Uh, one of the first things I did when I finished reading Shy, the alarmingly outspoken memoirs of Mary Rogers, was to read uh, Freaky Friday. Oh! And, and I love this book, and I had never read it before. I had saw the movie with... Um, Jodie Foster and Barbara Harris. I didn't see the later version, um, but this book is so much better. Well, the the version that you saw with uh, with Jodie Foster was uh, Mary wrote the screenplay for it, but it was Disney, as she said, Disney required her to put all that Disney bullshit into it. <laughs> say that on your show, yeah. Um, so she wasn't very happy with it either, and much preferred the later version with Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, Lindsay Lohan. But yeah, it's a really smart book. And, you know, it's about, a, it's not irrelevant what it's about. I mean, Mary didn't think that she was writing her biography when she wrote her fiction. Uh, but it is about a mother and a daughter switching places and learning to understand the burdens that each of them has in a way they uh, otherwise could not. Well, that's what that was the burden Mary had, was trying to understand her mother and getting her mother especially to understand her. One of the things I love about it is that there's no explanation for what happens. <laughs> it's I, lo- I love that happens. too. But yeah. of course, all the movie versions have had to add 
some explanation because apparently in movies you can't have actual mystery there has to be an explanation <laughs> apparently <laughs> uh, and and um now i'm sort of wanting to see if i can find some of those little golden records that she, she apparently she produced a lot of them huh yeah i've i've seen them online you know they look like they may be slightly melted. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that any playable ones exist. I I did have access to some uh, transferred tapes of of some of her early music uh, and uh, and some sheet music that she had produced, and and I got to play through that. And you know, I, w- I would call it all competent uh, and and witty when she sometimes wrote the lyrics as well. It's really her later music, which no one knows and probably no one ever will, because a lot of the shows got tangled up in copyright problems in a way that her father would never have allowed to have happen. Mm. But you have to be Richard Rogers to have that power um, that really showed her growing toward, you know, a, a really amazing expression of of a great gift that I, I wish she had had the opportunity to fully express but, um, you know, in many ways, perhaps we can think of her son as having carried on that, the family gift and taking it to the next level. Well, Jesse Green, it seems like a jukebox musical of the music of Mary Martin. It would be the perfect thing. Oh, no, but I, then I'd have to criticize it. What do I do? <laughs> the book is called Shy, The Alarmingly Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers. Written by Mary Rogers and my guest, the brilliant Jesse Green. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on From the Bookshelf. Thank you, Gary. It was a pleasure. Jesse Green, theater critic for the New York Times, his wonderful new book is called Shy The Alarmingly Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers. I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf. Joining us now is From the Bookshelf contributor Lissa Warren. Lissa Warren is the author of The Good Luck Cat, How a Cat Saved a Family and a Family Saved a Cat. She's been working in the publishing industry for more than 25 years, and she's the founder and president of Lissa Warren PR, which specializes in book and author publicity. She's also a professor at Boston's Emerson College, where she teaches in their writing, literature, and publishing program, and she's active on Twitter at Lissa underscore Warren. Lissa Warren, welcome back to the show. Hi, Gary. What have you been reading? You got some good books to talk with us about? I do. I do. I've been reading Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, and the subtitle is The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology. It's by a guy named James Garrity, and it was published this past fall in September by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press, and it is actually the first book I've ever read by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press. Muscular dystrophy became familiar to Americans in the 1950s through Jerry Lewis's telethons, and ALS became famous as Lou Gehrig's disease, and then more famous in 2014 because of the ice bucket challenge. It went viral, and many NFL fans know of cystic fibrosis from quarterback Boomer Esiason and his young son, Gunner. But ask the average person to name one other obscure disease and they'll probably come up empty, but not author James Garrity. A biotech exec, he's been a director of eight NASDAQ-listed biotech companies and the chair of five, and he's worked in the industry for over 40 years, a lot of it it at Genzyme, very big company. 
As Garrett Garrity explains, advances in medicine have made possible better treatments for widespread familiar human illnesses like cancer and diabetes and heart disease. But there are thousands of much less common diseases, most of genetic origin, each classed as rare because it afflicts a small number of people. These patient groups were long ignored by the pharmaceutical industry. That industry judged them too small to provide a return on the investment needed to develop an effective remedy. Yet these orphaned diseases, as they're called, by law defined as those affecting fewer than 200,000 patients in the U.S., it's different numbers for other countries, but 200,000 patients in the U.S., they collectively caused misery and expense often far greater than did more common ailments. And they caused them for tens of millions of individuals and their families when you kind of combine all of these rare diseases together. So something needed to be done. And the really good news is that something was. There was an orphan drug revolution. It was led by pioneering scientists and physicians and tireless activists and visionary business leaders. And they made it possible to find treatments and even cures in some cases for many rare diseases. Along the way, new technologies like gene therapy and gene editing sprung forth. So if you think this world of rare diseases doesn't pertain to you, you're probably wrong. Someday, you or a loved one may benefit from the things that we learned while working to rid the world of these rare diseases. That's the and, book in a nutshell. It was fascinating. And Garrity is a doctor? He's not. That's the really interesting thing. I mean, he's a businessman. He's a biotech exec, but he knows enough about the science and the medicine to be able to make really smart decisions on the business side that make it possible for the doctors and the scientists to do the work they do, the work we need them to do. Very interesting. Tell me the title of the book one more time. It's complicated. In a little bit. Inside the Author Drug Revolution. The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology. Very interesting. It's a smooth read. It's not like, ow, my head hurt at all. <laughs> like You can follow it. I think a lot of that is because he's a business guy, not you know somebody who's in a lab all day long. It's actually eminently readable. Sounds good. What else? So another kind of heady one. This one was published by MIT Press. It's called The Leak, Politics, Activists, and Loss of Trust at Brookhaven National Laboratory. It's by a guy named Robert Kreese. He was the winner of the Institute of Physics Kelvin Medal in recognition of his ability to explain key humanities concepts to scientists and key scientific concepts to humanists. So 25 years ago, a research reactor on Long Island's Brookhaven National Laboratory leaked underground a very small amount of water containing tritium. Now, I had never even heard of tritium. I didn't even know what it was. But apparently, the radiation of tritium is weak. A single sheet of paper actually stops its rays. So we're really talking, like, pretty weak. The incident posed zero threat to human health. It was not going to harm us. But the thing is, <laughs> there was a huge hubbub, as you kind of might imagine, hearing that, like, the laboratory down the street was leaking radioactive stuff. The scientists tried to explain it, but they were messaging neophytes, all of them, and they were drowned out by sensationalistic news coverage and lots of fear mongering. And the fear mongering actually was done by a lot of well-intentioned, but rather misinformed celebrities, including Alec Baldwin, 
and supermodel Christy Brinkley. So here I was reading my little geeky science book, and all of a sudden Alec Baldwin and Christy Brinkley are popping onto the pages. Um, there was also a grandstanding congressman who was really eager to elevate his environmental approval ratings. So he made the whole thing even worse than it needed to be. The high flux beam reactor at Brookhaven had helped make the US better in research in material science, protein structure, medical diagnoses, archeology, span and all of these other things. I mean, it was doing really, really good, really important work. But the media firestorm that sprang up around the discovery of this harmless spill could not be extinguished. And as a result, a safely operating, well-functioning, world-class scientific facility was actually closed. And its termination was a severe loss to the U.S. science because it enabled European science to take the lead in many important fields of research. It's an unexpectedly interesting story, and it has all kinds of plot twists, plot twists and celebrity cameos. Even Da Vinci Code author Dan Brown makes an appearance in it. I won't give away too much on that, but you'll be reading along and all of a sudden you're like, wow, how did Dan Brown get here? Um, but it it really was like kind of a roller coaster ride of a read, much, much more so than I anticipated. And the the thing that I took away from it more than anybody, more than anything else, is that what happened at Brookhaven turned out to be sort of a canary in the coal mine for all of the science denial and the disregard for, for facts that are rampant in America today. Like think of all the science denial we had around COVID. We should have seen that coming. Like we should be able to have looked back at what happened at this lab and thought, oh, this is what happens when people who don't really know what they're talking about start talking really loudly and microphones start being put in front of them. There you have it. And so this uh, Alec Baldwin, he was sort of misinformed as to the importance of this thing and got sucked into it or what? Yeah, he, he kind of thought that there was like some big cover up and that this was actually going to like get in the groundwater and kill us all. And that was just so not the case. I mean, that was not the science behind it. But as someone coming to it as a non-scientist, he didn't know what he was talking about, but everybody was listening because he was a celebrity. Mm. He was well-intentioned, but it did not help. In fact, it hurt. And he's a he is a left-wing celebrity. And this thing yeah. that you're talking about, COVID deniers are mostly right-wing. Right so. Yeah, but it's kind of an equal opportunity when these things happen, it turns out. Now we know, bipartisan, very bipartisan. Very interesting. The leak, politics, activists, and loss of trust at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Robert, what's his name? Robert P. Crease. Yep, Bob Crease. All right. Well, that's an interesting one. You know, you brought me a book uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to have the author as a guest on from the bookshelf soon. Her name is Natasha Lance Rogoff, and this book is called Muppets in Moscow The Unexpected Crazy True Story of Making Sesame Street in Russia. And you would think that. That wouldn't be particularly difficult. I mean, you just take a show and you dub it in Russian and you put it on over there. But it was a lot more than that involving. Yeah, it was anything but easy. It all kind of started to go wrong when the Russians didn't like the Muppets that were used in Sesame Street. Like they just couldn't relate to them. They just didn't like them. So she and her team were tasked with making Muppets that sort of gave a nod to Russian history and Russian culture and that would be embraced by the Russian people. So as if that weren't hard enough, 
She then had this team of people who didn't speak English in many cases, trying to write scripts. And they were trying to write scripts that had educational content to them for young children. And they wanted these children to be able to learn things like, you know, like how do you choose if you're going to have juice or you're going to have milk for snack time today? And that, you know, it might be nice to sort of leave the choice up to the children. Like that's a very American democratic kind of thing. But in Russia, like, here's your milk. You're lucky to have it. Drink it now. Like very different, very different culture. So she was asking writers who were writing scripts to sort of channel their inner American and democratic values in order to write these scenes. But they were like, how could we possibly do that? We're not American. We're not Democrats. It's not our society. Like you're asking us to do something you're asking us to write something that we know nothing about because that is not our lived lives. So just imagine trying to lead a team like that. Yeah, it's a really interesting book. And in addition to all of those things that you talked about, the cultural things, there's also, you know, murders and car bombings. and Oh, yeah, they were like blowing people up around her. I mean, it was awful, awful because they did not want this show to go on air. And it wasn't necessarily, from what I understood, just because they didn't want American democratic values coming to the country, there was also a lot of like money involved and business and power struggles behind the scenes, like all that stuff you might normally expect in big business media in a foreign country where they don't have as many rules about conduct as we have here in the United States in the business arena. It was or in a spy novel, but not in a book about the Muppets. Yeah, yeah. You, it was like, you know, little puppets meet Russian spies. I mean, it was just bonkers. It's a great, great story. I'm so glad you're having her on. Yeah, that'll be in a couple of weeks. Uh, you know her, who her husband is, right? No, I have no idea. The economist Ken Rogoff. Oh. He's Harvard. Like, he's a big old brilliant person on his own right. So they're quite the power couple. It's really neat. Interesting. Natasha Lance Rogoff and her book's called Muppets in Moscow. The unexpected, crazy, true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. Uh, you always bring me great books, Lisa Warren, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for visiting with us on From the Bookshelf. Come back again soon. I will. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf, and she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.